0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 135 interviews in this podcast series all of which you can enjoy on the website aarecoveryinterviews.com and on all podcast apps. My guest on today's show, Walt P., got sober in AA over five years ago. He was raised in a military family who moved every couple of years. The transitory nature of Walt's childhood and adolescence meant making and losing friends on a frequent basis. A sense of impermanence drove his desire to excel in whatever short-term opportunities the relocations created. But by the time college allowed him to stay four years in one spot, alcohol had already pervaded Walt's life. He drank for all the usual reasons and had a proclivity for drinking more than his peers. Nonetheless, he graduated, got his career underway, and married shortly thereafter. But the trajectory towards heavy drinking and alcoholism was impeded by a diagnosis of a lupus-type autoimmune disease that Walt battled for over 15 years. Drinking took a backseat to the medications and painkillers, but thankfully he did not become addicted to the opioids and other meds. Alcohol was not advised, but Walt's intake of liquor continued, especially at those times when the painkillers were ineffective. By the time he overcame the disease of his immune system, Walt's drinking had escalated, His disease of alcoholism was disrupting every aspect of his life, especially with his family. Ultimately, it took a DUI to convince Walt to come into AA. He dove into the program, got a sponsor, worked the steps, and became of reliable service to others. Walt tethered himself to a group of men who reside in the middle of the program, and he has become solid in AA fellowship. Walt's story is both poignant and inspiring and has much wisdom to impart to current and future members of Alcoholics Anonymous. So please, enjoy this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my good friend and AA brother, Walt P. I'm Walt. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Walt. <laughs> <laughs> That's the right answer to that simple question. I'm so glad that you're able to join me this evening on AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. And the great thing is I get to see you at several meetings a week, which is cool. And um, I find that the good thing about the interviews is they give people a larger context to look at or put into perspective what people say in meetings. So if you share for five minutes about something, I can put that in perspective because I know your whole story, which is kind of cool. That's that what this has all been about. So now you just recently celebrated a birthday. Yeah, June was five years. So Five years. Mm-hmm. Fortunate. Boy, that went by quick.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's been quite the quite the fun ride. The best thing that ever happened to me, uh, besides my kids and wife, was a DUI in June of 2018. And I luckily drew a judge that put a breathalyzer in my car and rolled my case for nine months. And my lawyer said, I don't know if you're an alcoholic, but you're going to AA three times a week and sit in the front row and take notes. And I heard a bunch of stories and realized that I was one, and a family member got in a medical crisis about three months later, and thank goodness um, I had been sitting in the rooms, and it was really hard to, to ask for help, but I'm so glad I did, because after that particular meeting, someone suggested uh, some some people to talk to, and, and they turned out to be the perfect people, and, and this family member was able to get help. and. You know, it, it certainly was on my my heart and my my brain, you know, the first year. But you know, you quickly realize it's not about anybody else. It's an inside job, and so I just kept putting myself in the rooms and surrounding myself with men who who told some really hard stories and and how they walked through it. And I I'm a very high energy, driving person who doesn't ask for help very well. So it was the perfect, I don't know what you would call it, classroom, right, to sit down and have a textbook and have men and uh, leaders and, and a sponsor and work the steps. And I heard the holidays referred to the other day as the Super Bowl, that all the meetings and all the service work and all the time that we put in leads us up to these six weeks. And, and you know, in a way, it was it was a way to That first year to just, you know, walk through it without numbing out and punching out when I couldn't solve the problem. That that was the point of my drinking was I couldn't
0: solve it. That problem within your family that created that crisis, you said you were sober for, what, three, six months at that time when you had to deal with it immediately? Yeah. What did you learn within that first three to six months that made it possible for you to turn to that for help with that crisis situation?
1: You know, Howard, I'd I'd love to give you some intellectual, fancy answer. It was just the gift of desperation, right? I didn't know what was going to happen on the court case, and I was scared, and I think it went from being scared to becoming a habit, and then it turned into something that I wanted to do. Hmm. I'm not really sure when that happened along that first year, but it was just so peaceful to come into the room. I went to as you know, a noon meeting three times a week in a particular place and and I was so lucky my job my new job was across the street from that building, so yeah. I was able to walk over there and just i mean I could feel my heart rate go down and you know there's the meeting before the meeting and the meeting after the meeting and and going to lunch and and just looking at all these men and and you know I've got a strong group of women now too because I run into into some people, and I'm able to refer them over to these strong group of women, but I really enjoyed the men's meetings.
0: Well, it sounds like you really had the opportunity after the, the court case with regard to your drunk driving. And was that the first time you had ever gotten cited? Yes. Lots of people take two or three up to five. I've seen even more drunk driving charges to finally get them to open their eyes, but it sounds like you did it immediately.
1: Well, I was really scared. I, I, I just... Didn't want to go to jail. I didn't know if I was going to jail, but I sure didn't want to go to jail. And so that yeah. I, I was told to do X, Y, and Z. And so I did X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I was lucky my sponsor was my next door neighbor, you know, like 10 years prior. And so having a man in my life that already had a relationship made it a lot easier because I don't know for everybody else, but when I came in, it felt like the Peanuts cartoon and the teacher in the background going wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah, right? I heard the words, but I didn't know what to do. And and fortunately, you know, you and and my sponsor and and just a group of great men were like, okay, X, Y, Z. And um, you asked me how did I walk through all that, I think one of the big turning points was knowing that my uh, maternal grandfather was an alcoholic, but finding out my paternal grandfather was an alcoholic. You didn't know that? I didn't know that, no. And uh, it was my behavior. Maybe I was genetically predisposed to this, but knowing that it was on both sides of the family for some reason helped me, you know, besides... The alcoholism on my mom's side of the family, there's a lot of mental health. And, and a lot of people self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. I'm bipolar. Mm-hmm. And I got that diagnosis in 2004, and I was lucky enough to go into those rooms. right? As you know, there's an organization in town. I went to that meeting weekly for, heck, I think I facilitated a meeting for 10 years. So by the time I got to AA, sitting in a room in and sharing and asking for help mm-hmm. was a lot easier. I was a lot more scared when I came into AA because of the court case, but I was very comfortable coming in and asking that's not true. If I were comfortable I would have asked for help with my drinking, but the I knew when I was going manic and I would drink to slow my brain down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the the whipsaw of, you know, a dual diagnosis was rough, and I I battled an autoimmune disease that kicked my butt for 15 years during this.
0: Mental illness is one of the big drivers, I think, of, of when it comes to drinking and using drugs. What was your experience with drinking and the bipolar occurring at the same time? Same
1: roller coaster, right? It was a it was a social lubricant in college and afterwards, um, and then the mania hit. I knew I could slow my brain down drinking, but once the bipolar symptoms really kicked in, the depressions were awful, right? Yeah. The higher I went, the lower I crashed. And and of course, you know, with bipolar, you don't just take your insulin and you're okay, right? It, yeah. it took about two years to, to figure out the medication side of it. But it, again, back to the support meetings, they always talked about this three-legged stool of Support and your psychiatrist and your psychologists, and there were times in that run where the doctors were like, "Hey, you can't drink on on this medication," and I would stop. Right? I didn't know alcoholism was progressive. It took me getting pulled over and getting in the rooms before I understood that. Because, in fact, there were times with autoimmune disease where I had to rotate through methadone, morphine, fentanyl, and Vicodin and tramadol. And I guess my brain didn't like those drugs because I never abused the opiates, but I certainly abused alcohol down the road, right? So if you take the the bipolar and the autoimmune muscle disease and the alcoholism, it was a horrible run, right? I always think of things in in stories and visuals, and like everyone's a duck paddling like a son of a gun underneath the water. And I was paddling hard because it, you know, I'm married with two kids at that point, and I'm working hard, but it's a rough run.
0: When were you first diagnosed with the bipolar?
1: I didn't admit it till 2004, but I probably knew in the mid-90s.
0: What were you thinking was wrong all that time? I mean, did you acknowledge the fact that you had that but didn't want to do anything about it? Or how how did you reconcile the fact that you had bipolar many, many years before you ever had it diagnosed? You know,
1: I've... The honest answer is I was scared of it. I had seen it rip through my mom's side of the family and destroy a lot of their lives. And Was it labeled as such, though? Yeah, my grandfather, back in the day, it was manic depression, right? And he was taking lithium, and he was an alcoholic, and, you know, lots of uncles. And, you know, I'd see the chronic depression or the bipolar just tear people up and— I just thought I could manage it, right? And of course you can. And and finally, I had a manic episode that was just so high, I knew I was in trouble, and I asked for help. And uh, you're looking back on it, it looks like, you know, lights on, on an airport runway, right? I I should have paid attention to them, but it just took, I don't know, consequences for me to address both the bipolar and the and alcoholism, the The funny thing is, is when the the autoimmune muscle disease ripped 60 pounds off of me in two months, it was like, oh, okay, I got to do something about this. But (laughs) the the roller coaster of bipolar and alcoholism, I just thought I could manage it until
0: I couldn't, right? Well, and it's also tough when you see it in the family and you're a child and you, you can't really label it or understand it. What was it like for you and your family of origin?
1: It was, again, on the surface, it looked great. Right, my my dad was a hard charging army man before I was born, and then he turned hospitals around. and My mom taught school, and we moved every two or three years. And you know, in that environment, you sink or swim. Right, you either come into to the new school and make friends, or you don't. And I'm an outgoing person, so it was fun, but it also was difficult because I knew that I wouldn't be around my friends for more than two or three years. And so, and I have an incredible sister and mom and dad and my, my sister six years older and she just ripped the cover off the ball. Right. Hmm. You know, first she was in the class of women that got the first ROTC scholarships mm-hmm. and she's, you know, perfect scores and athlete. And, and so I'm not sure when I figured this out, but I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to have a social life and make a B plus or an A minus. So mm-hmm. I'd always go find the valedictorian and I would study with him or her until I got to the B plus or A minus. And then I'd punch out because I wanted to go enjoy it. And so I haven't looked at family of origin until recently in a big hard way. And like any parents, you know, they did the best they could. Yeah. But, you know, both my parents grew up with alcoholic dads. So I I just put my head down and and I worked hard, but I also, I was always looking for, I won't say the easy way out, but like, it's like a book report. You look at the index and see which topics have the most page numbers next to them, right? It right. was like, okay, I'm going to study hard. I'm going to you know, do athletics and I'm going to have a social life. And if I can keep all this spinning, then life's great because I get to redo it in two years when we move again. I would figure out what I wanted to accomplish, and then I would figure out who the people were that could help me, and then I would help them get what they wanted, so I would get what I want, right? I mean, I I wish—there's probably a fancier way to say that, but I learned from a very early age, okay, um, I like to study, I like girls, and I'm good at sports, so I'm instantly going to upset three groups of people in this new community that I'm moving into, So it better work really hard integrating. And, you know, it wasn't like you had the Internet or Facebook. I mean, you paid for long-distance phone calls, right? My Army dad wasn't about to let me, you know, call my friends from the old town. And I went to three different high schools. And the only one that that rattled me was having to move halfway through my senior year in high school. That was the one where I was like, Dad, Mom, come on, just let me stay here with some friends, Right. But I also knew, hey, I'm off to college, like, what's what's five months? But looking back on it, yeah. you know, yeah. it just was the norm, right? So people say, that must be yeah. tough. And I was like, no, it, it just is what we did, right? And so I, I think I hit college, and it was a little bit of a surprise when I had people around me for four years. I wasn't
0: used to that. Yeah, compared to what? At the time, there, there wasn't a the what, yeah. because that's how you were living your life. At what point did you start drinking on your own volition? I don't mean, a sip as a child, but when when did you first encounter alcohol and what did you how did that look?
1: Yeah, I, I can remember maybe having sips of, yeah, beer. We always went back to my grandmother's house on my mom's mm-hmm. side for Christmas, but it there was so much chaos in that world that it scared me, mm-hmm. right? I I saw family members and I was the youngest of almost the youngest of all the grandchildren. And so I just, and in high school, dad wasn't going to put up with someone coming home drunk. Mm. And underage, I mean, he knew that at some point we were going to go out and drink, but there, it wasn't until college that I really opened it up. And I went to a small you know, university in Tennessee that had 13,000 acres and 1,200 kids. And um, it was cool to study. But there were always a wave of probably 100 kids coming off two weeks of hard classes and turning in papers. So every night you could find 100 kids that wanted to really have fun. And that's the first time I remember like, okay, let's just drive through this. and, And there's a there's a party on the end of this. I just think remember in my pledge class, you know. Shake day, having to chug beer, thinking, God, this tastes awful. Why do people like this? Well, it didn't take too long to, you know, enjoy the taste of beer. But I, that's how I went into college. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing for me.
0: Did you black out or have any problems with the drinking at that time? Yeah, I would
1: drink too much. But I, I, did, I didn't really have any context, right, where—Swannee's a hard-drinking school. And, oh. and they didn't want you leaving the mountain— yeah, do what
0: you're going to do at home so that we can make sure you're okay in the end, right? Yeah. And,
1: you know, it was an incredible place to learn how to read, write, and think.
0: And you knew your professors.
1: And, and if you acted like an idiot, mm-hmm. your upperclassmen and your professors pulled you to the side the next day.
0: You were in a fraternity?
1: I was in a fraternity, and you know, I played sports. And, I had a, you know, I had, a, I had a good time. Did you
0: have a group of folks who you hung with, a certain group? Were they the... the The athletic people, the academic people are a totally different type of group.
1: I'd say both. I mean, it was such a small school. You got along with everybody, right? Like you might not hang out with everybody, but it was such a small school that like kegs were at this house on Thursday night and then they were at this house on Friday. And so people just rotated around, right? right There right. (laughs) There was no, there was no like, oh, you're not. You know, you're the theater group. You can't come drink with us. Like everyone just, you know, got it on. And, yeah. and I don't want to paint Swanee as this, you know, just crazy place because you could be a Rhodes Scholar or
0: you could be a drunk, right? And sometimes you could be both if you were a functional alcoholic who didn't know they were an alcoholic yet.
1: You know, we all went up there thinking that we were pretty smart. And yeah. I think there were 10 kids who made a three seven or better their freshman year. And so it was like, ooh, wow, I better I better buckle down, right? Um, but there was also, let's buckle down, but when we get it done, let's go wind it up, right? And so to your point, you got better at it, right? <laughs> you got more efficient at it. You know, there were certainly a lot of the student population who weren't out doing what we were doing. Mm-hmm. It was just fun. I like to be in the middle of the party. I like to have, you know, fun. I in fact my friends that I've played golf with for decades say, you're not much different. And I go, "Yes, I am." And I ask them what they mean by that, and they're like, "Well, you're all you're always in the middle of it having fun. It's just, you know, you don't do stupid shit at the end of the night." And so I I would say that was the same thing in college, right? It was it, it, we were having fun, but we were we were the people shutting the party down and and finding the the truck stop to go to.
0: Have you been back to the school or back with any groups of people who you drank in, with back then, sober?
1: Yes. What yes. was that like? It's awesome because it knows a complete sentence when they ask you if you want to drink, right? And then you know they ask you again, and I say I hit my quota. And it just, you know, 95% of the people are like, oh, okay, that's cool. And they go on about their business, right? Mm -hmm. The 5% are the ones who come back to me two days later on the golf trip or the whatever it is and go, you know, I think I drink too much. Can I talk to you about that? Yeah. And that's a, I never thought I'd get that opportunity to connect with a man on such a, you know, incredibly fulfilling level. Yeah. Yeah.
0: One of the things I noticed when I got sober was that the friends who I drank with, who I attempted to stay friends with, I realized that so much of our relationship was built around drinking and smoking grass and, you know, doing drugs occasionally. But when I stopped and they didn't, and still tried to relate with each other, it was very, it was very different because they wanted to talk about the drunken, you know, the, the, the story about closing down the bar the week before or, you know, the, the kind of drugs they were taking. And what could I talk about? I had plenty to talk about, but not the people who didn't want to hear it. So I had a whole, whole range of things in my life that I couldn't share with these people because they were still drinking and they didn't want to hear about sobriety.
1: Yeah, when I hear the same story the second or third time, that's my, that's my, okay, I'm out, right? <laughs> and uh, I heard someone on a golf trip say the other day, because I walked into the kitchen, as, as they were saying, they're like, yeah, you know, Walt used to take our car and we didn't know where he'd go, but he'd show up on the tea time, you know, <laughs> he'd show up on time for the tea time. Now he takes our car and goes to an AA meeting, right? Mm-hmm. And now I go on golf trips and I purposely bring three or four guys that are sober. So, and the other guys, you know, they can get their drink on. That's fine. Right. And we get up and go to meetings and find them and, and we have a blast and we've had some incredible conversations with people who, you know, doctors who are like, you mean it's not willpower?
0: Doesn't that amaze you? Yeah. In this day and age that that doctors would still be asking that question.
1: Well, they got trained 30 years ago, or at least my peer group 30 years ago, Right.
0: So there you were in college, you you graduated okay, any consequences along the way from, or any uh, obstacles created by your drinking along the way?
1: No, I'm sure my wife of 30 years that I went to college with would tell you some along the way, but for me, it, uh, so she went to law school, I was lucky enough to get a fellowship to study in Europe, so I went same nomadic life right i i was in four or five different countries i was talking employers into letting me intern with them and study alternative energy i wasn't reporting to anybody i you know i had 12 months to do this thing and i was doing it and i had a i had a great time and i got back and i um i should have come straight to austin where edith was in school but i stopped in tennessee and took a sales job the plan was to go to law school. Mm-hmm. And I worked for an engineering firm one summer in college, and I realized that I didn't want to be in the basement for four years. Like, you know, maybe my alcoholic brain was like, I want to be the lawyer in the courtroom, right? And when I realized, oh, you don't get there for a while, I was like, all right, this isn't any fun. Mm-hmm. And these guys that I had helped in the summer hired me, and they said, hey, just go to every major city and sign up some manufacturer's reps for us. And if you close enough business, you can to Austin and see your girlfriend. So that was a perfect setup. Nice. But I drank too much on the road in that job. That was the first time where, you know, I'm not in Europe trying to figure out where I'm going to spend the night you know city to city it's like okay i've got a plan and all i gotta do is close enough business and get to austin
0: so you had an expense account a car you had the whole nine yards yeah 23 i didn't choose
1: sales but sales you know looking back was great but not for my
0: alcoholic brain well you're you're not under surveillance all the time as you are when you're in the office
1: yeah, and the flip side of the coin is, if you want to get your graduate degree in drinking, you can set up your <laughs> your life to uh, around lunches and yeah. and taking clients and prospects out, and and it's it's pay for performance, right? If I'm yeah. closing
0: business, yeah. people aren't watching. That's right, and then when you're not, they've got action plans and different things. So you you went to Austin, you got to uh, get together with your now wife.
1: Yes, um, we got married. Her summer after her second year in law school. And I, you know, again, I got lucky. I went to work for Dell Computer, which I didn't even know. I thought it was Dell Crossword Puzzles when the first <laughs> person asked me did I want to interview there. Mid-90s were, you know, there were 3,000 employees in 1994. There were 30,000 in 1998 when we left to come to Houston. Mm-hmm. And, and my wife went to come work for Dell um, out of law school. And so... You know, it's a hard charging group of men and women and again it's hard drinking and get after it, right? And and we didn't have any outside sales reps, and so as we started selling more and more to customers, they wanted us to come up and talk to them about what's the roadmap and they wanted outside salespeople. And so my boss was like, Hey, go find some outside salespeople. Well, what does that mean? I got to go take the IBM or compact guy out or, or woman and say, hey, come across the street. And so I'm 25 years old talking to 45-year-old mm-hmm. men and women over dinner, over drinks. and. But Dell was the hottest thing going at that time, wasn't it? It was. And I was so lucky. I mean, they taught me how to sell. They taught me don't worry about technology. Just help people, right? Build relationships. and. And I was probably set up for that, the way that I grew up moving around. Like I understood how to meet somebody, and but what a phenomenal business model and opportunity! But the muscle disease hit me in nineteen ninety-five, and it was awful. And
0: what was it caused? Was it caused by anything in particular? Or just no,
1: um, it's called dermatomyositis. It's a it's similar to lupus. It to sell my muscles as the enemy so it would yeah. just eat them and the lactic acid burn that you get when you work out I felt that 24-7 and there weren't that many rheumatologists in Austin so by 1998 we decided to come to Houston where my wife grew up and and we were starting uh, we were trying to have a family and so everyone was like you're leaving Lakeway to go to Houston like people want to do that in reverse Walt well, what are you doing it was like hey We got family in the medical center. We got a, and by that time, I had been taught by a lot of people how to sell well, and so I knew I could come to Houston and find a job, and frankly, boil my number out, because the muscle disease would would kill me all year, but it would really kill me from October to March. Mm. So I would just go boil my number, and then when I couldn't get out of bed, or I felt awful, I could ride it. But along the way, I'm drinking, right? Because I'm in such pain, um, and the bipolar is is you know whipsawing me. And
0: what did you know about alcohol and its effect on the autoimmune disease? I knew that I shouldn't be drinking. What were you telling yourself to continue to do it? Then it's okay because you're in such pain. Most people would go to pills by that point.
1: You know, my doctor wouldn't prescribe anything more than Vicodin, and Vicodin only lasted an hour for the eight hours it was supposed to.
0: A bottle of scotch will, will take care of things for a while.
1: Yeah, and as silly as it sounds, I read an article about Brett Favre getting addicted, and I was like, well, if he can, I can. So I better not do this. Hmm. And
0: But alcohol was okay.
1: Yeah. In your mind.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it was, of course, a terrible idea, but... So it exacerbated the uh, the the disease the autoimmune disease and
1: the bipolar and the alcoholism right it was it was the worst idea, but it was the easiest idea. <laughs>
0: It fit, it fit well for an alcoholic, though, didn't it?
1: sure. But in fact, I mean, it sounds silly, how? But I, literally, until I got in the rooms of AA, I, I didn't understand that it was progressive and that yeah. that I was an alcoholic. And 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 you and I both know that you know drinking is just the symptom, right? I had mm. no idea what was going on from the self-centered, yeah. you know, mind and and all the things that you learn when you go through the steps. I was just. I was just trying to kick butt and take names and raise a family, right? I was I was raised in this performance household, and I was in sales, and it was like go, and the drinking along the way—that was just kind of the social environment. No, I chose to put myself into it, and until the muscle disease and the bipolar got you know put me in the bed, literally, yeah, I didn't have time to. Well, that's not true either. I chose not to look at what
0: I was doing. So what year did you come to Houston? 1998. 98. Okay, so that's 25 years ago as we're speaking right now. And you, you married your wife prior to coming? Yes. And when did the kiddos come along?
1: When we moved here, Grace was born in 1999, So, and then Carolyn came in 2001. So, you know, game on, right? We're in Houston, small kids. I knew nothing about the energy industry, so I was working my tail off to figure out how to how to build a career in it.
0: Did that mean long
1: hours not at home? Oh yeah, and I was on a plane, and you know
0: how did that ratchet up your drinking?
1: well, in my mind, I thought I was doing the i was doing the hard drinking on the road and it wasn't ripple affecting the family I get it right get of course it was
0: yeah in what ways
1: showing up. You know, with young kids and a wife and I'm hungover or I'm, I feel awful and I'm just not, I'm, I, you know, I'm not present. Right. Mm-hmm. I can make a lot of other comments, but I'm not present. Right. I'm not leading my family. I'm not I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good father. Um, I'm taking care of stuff, but I'm not present. And if if you were interacting with me, it was it was all about me. I always joke that my wife is thankfully still in her starter husband.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, place. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. Did you get any feedback from your wife about your behavior? And what stories were you telling her? And what stories were you telling yourself about why it was okay for you to continue on that same road?
1: She certainly would say at times, you know, you're drinking too much and, and I need help. And, you know, with the kids. And But there was... Naively, I didn't know this roller coaster of alcoholism was going on, but I had these two roller coasters of bipolar and the muscle disease going on. Right. And right. so my thought was, well, let me just take care of business. Mm-hmm. And I just drink on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, right? I'm not, it's not that bad. And of course, it accelerated to, I don't want to drink this third styro to, I don't want to drink it, but I'm going to drink it. That's a couple of years before the DUI. That's when I knew I had a problem. Hmm. But for the, I mean, 30s, 40s, I just was like, hey.
0: Are they kind of a blur for you looking back? Mm-hmm. No, because I'm a pretty focused person. At some point you became an alcoholic, but you were still a functional alcoholic, so you could still get your job done and provide for your family, but still drink like an alcoholic?
1: Yeah, looking back on it, that's what it looked like. And while it was going on, I, I I, wouldn't have been able to tell you. I just would have been able to tell you that the annual plan that I made in December for the next year, I was not accomplishing that. I wasn't accomplishing what I needed to, you know, in the church and in the family and at my job and with my friends and yeah, you, know, you plan your plan and you work your plan. Yeah. But I knew I knew drinking was the reason that I wasn't executing as well as I could, but I didn't understand why I needed to drink.
0: When did that realization first come to you? In this timeline between when you come to Houston, when you stop drinking, the years in between. When does that realisation hit you?
1: Well, let's see. In two thousand eight the muscle disease went away. Um so then it was, uh, well, I can really drink now, right? I don't have to stop because I'm on these opiates or I'm on the bipolar medication. And, of course, it's not like the bipolar went away, right? I shouldn't have been drinking on the bipolar medication. But when the muscle disease went away, it was like, okay. Maybe it was the
0: alcohol? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something the doctors just didn't know. <laughs> yeah and and
1: you know me i like i'll I'll call it as I see it, right if yeah. my doctor asked me how much I was drinking i'd t- oh, it's just Thursday, Friday and Saturday night right mm-hmm. um but yeah, looking back on it, it was um that's my biggest regret that I wasn't present yeah. right i everything else like I can break it down and analyze and put it into buckets, but it's I wasn't present for my family, and that's the
0: hard one. How did that make you feel at the time when you when you had that realization, and how did you live with that realization for the ensuing years? Oh, I just drank more vodka.
1: Really? Yeah. Right. Like I've screwed this up, and I I can't fix
0: it. Was it a fatalistic point of view, or no? The suicidal
1: ideation came with the muscle disease, right? That was once I got drove through that, I never thought, oh, well, life's so bad, I'm, I can't fix anything. I'm going to kill myself with alcohol. It was when my body was literally
0: on fire. Yeah, so that's in the rearview mirror. While you're moving ahead with the bipolar, you mentioned that things were starting to deteriorate at home and at work because of the drinking and the bipolar going on simultaneously. Uh and you got to AA in June 11, 2018. What was the trajectory? When did when did the things really start to fall out the bottom for you?
1: Yeah, before I got in the rooms, I'd tell you it was okay, right? It was fine. The, in 2004 was when I said I needed help on the bipolar. I'd been going to meetings, I had those meds dialed in. 2008, the muscle disease goes away. So it's 08 to. 15 that I'm fooling myself. I'm lying to myself
0: while you're drinking more and more. Yeah, but
1: I'm sure my volume intake went up, but it wasn't until the girls hit middle school and high school And I didn't know how to handle You know what was going on in their lives. right? Like I I was raised You know your parents tell you to do something you do it right and I the problem was raising strong independent women is they become strong independent women and my and my kids are awesome and they challenged me and but I didn't I didn't respond to it well in while I was drinking
0: did your wife ever confront you on that particular part
1: yes of course she told me hey you you can't you can't do this like you're you're losing your temper and this isn't this isn't the way we raise our kids yeah and i would try to not do it. But then I would justify it by saying, I had a hard week. I'm just going to stop on the way home and have a couple of drinks. So when I hit the house, I'll get out of fix it mode, Mm -hmm. right? In my job, like, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm driving things. And so I realized I would come home and I would try to fix everything, right? If you've got calculus homework or you've got X, Y, or Z, okay, let's get it done, right? There was no compassion around my Assistance. It was chop chop. And my expectations for my kid—they're still too high, but they were crazy high before I stopped drinking. If if you weren't doing what I told you to do, I got mad. Yeah. And it was horrible.
0: There's that sense that accompanies the disease into AA when we finally get help—that unmanageability where. Scenery would stay put. If everything would work out exactly the way you wanted, life would be great. Was that the kind of scene that you were trying to get to?
1: I don't know if I was consciously
0: trying to get there.
1: I certainly, my brain was certainly (laughs) wired that way. But it it wasn't until I got into the rooms when I read that particular paragraph. I'm like, oh, like, of course, they're different stories that talk to different people. But that was one of them. I was like, oh, maybe, maybe. I'm one of y'all, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was like, yeah. what do you, like, this is how you, this is how you get ahead in life. Like, you get things done and you drive it, right? It never, I mean, it never dawned on me that that wasn't the way to go through life. And, and my parents did a great job taking me to church. And, you know, you would think that that I would have not gone down this path, right?
0: Well, what you told me about your childhood, though, was everything was pretty regimented for you because your dad was in the Army, the kids I would assume did what dad said you know for fear of not doing it oh absolutely in fact it wasn't until I went to make
1: my amends to my father that I unlocked what the environment that he grew up in so Mm. his father didn't live with him the first eight years of his life and he didn't have a lot of stability and predictability in his life and so he put his head down and and got out of South Alabama to Vanderbilt on a scholarship and went into the Army. And so Dad chops wood and hauls water better than anybody I've ever seen. And all he was trying to do was give me the environment that he didn't have, and I hated it, right? I I just felt like he had me under his thumb, and I just I couldn't wait to get out of it. And then literally it wasn't until you know I got in the rooms and I worked with my sponsor and I drove to Alabama and to make my amends and and you're absolutely right I was never going to parent the way that my parents did I was not going to do that well I absolutely did that right if you I was nice until 80% of the situation but when you didn't do what I told you to do I threw the hammer at you and that's what my kids remember They don't remember nice dad, the first 80%. They remember hammer dad. And that was exactly what I didn't want to do. And then when you throw alcohol into it, the hammer's awful, right? The hammer's awful anyway, but the the alcoholic hammer is just destructive. and, And I've had to rebuild relationships with my daughters as a result.
0: So whatever it was that you were feeling when you were their age, they end up feeling at their age about you, but perhaps things have been ratcheted down a little bit from the energy that was steering your dad's behavior to the energy that was steering your behavior, and then you threw alcohol on top of that.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, it's my, it's my behavior, right? I did it, but the, but the environment that I was in, I didn't understand until I was 49, mm. right? When I was going through it, it was just like, okay, you want me to perform? Then I'm going to perform, and I'm going to get out of here. And my mom, unbelievable and sweet, and 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 um, so it was a very you know interesting household because we had the driver and the and the person that was like, yeah, Dad wants you to do this, but this is what's important. You treat people well, and you put everybody puts their pants on the same way, and
0: well, and in that generation too it was much more common for the wives to support the fathers in behavior that what they themselves would not condone. In what ways was your wife's behavior like that and and or was it not like that, enabling?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, every alcoholic has an enabling significant other, but, um, you know, it's on me, Howard. I mean, yeah. you know... She's an incredible woman, and and I'm lucky to to still be married to her. You know, when you go through a medical crisis early in your marriage, it either busts you or it glues you. And so, you know, we battled the muscle disease for 14 years, and so even though there were things that were hard on the bipolar and alcoholism side Mm -hmm. and both kids had some medical issues, you know, we chose to put our head down and, and go through it. Yeah. Right. And so even though there were things that that we could have done better, it was just like, Hey, we're at least standing on the, on up in life. Right. I mean, I should have died. And, you know, it just was like, okay, well, let's, let's just keep moving forward. Right. And of course it's easier to not look back and things and, take them apart and understand what's going on. Well,
0: we don't want to regret the past, but we also don't want to shut the door on it because there will come a point at which we have to deal with the past and regrets about it don't make it any easier to get to. So I, I get that. But it sounds to me like the kind of home life you had was about right for an alcoholic, a practicing alcoholic, a functional alcoholic although you said things started to deteriorate. Besides the court case, when did the wheels start to rattle until they were about ready to come off?
1: <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here thinking. It'd be interesting to ask Edith that question, right? I looked at it probably in 2015 to 18. Mm-hmm. I was taking care of things, but I there were some things going on medically with some family members that we couldn't figure out and I couldn't fix, and it drove me crazy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like a good driving, self-centered alcoholic, I'm like, okay, well, I'll just pour more vodka on it.
0: Yeah. Right. Them having their problem is your problem.
1: But when I can't fix their problem, yeah. then I might as well pick up the nummet juice yeah. And, yeah. and drown myself. Because, like, a lot of my self-worth at that time was tied into how I fix things and how I lead the family and how I take care of things. And there were some things that we hadn't figured out medically. And so I, it drove me crazy.
0: So you didn't know how to be powerless, did you? No, I'm not really good at at that. Isn't it something how, how often and severely we have to get knocked down before we will admit that we're powerless. At, at what point did you, realize that the alcohol wasn't going to give you the control that you needed? Or
1: What pops in my head is looking down at that styrofoam cup and knowing that nothing good was going to come of drinking this, and I would still drink it. I don't know when that switch flipped, yeah. but I knew I was in a bad place. And so, yeah, you fifteen, know, 15, 16, 17, I'm not really sure. I just know the last, you know, three years were no fun because... It used to be let me stop on the way home and and dial down my ego because I don't want to be a jerk at home to stopping at the bar and coming home a worse dad and a worse father because I've poured this alcohol into my body. Yeah. And so that those were the dark times because I knew that I had a problem and and now that I say it out loud to you, and I've said it out loud for five and a half years, it sounds bonkers.
0: Yeah, well, that's what we are—we're bonkers.
1: But to your point, like sometimes you got to be put on your knees so you look up and ask for help. And and thankfully, on June tenth, two thousand eighteen, a guy in a blue suit
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: pulled me yeah. over, and and I and you know, just thank goodness it happened.
0: Not being able to control that was about you, not about your powerlessness, right <laughs> <laughs> yeah um,
1: it's just been funny sitting here for an hour talking to you because I talk about like writing these plans in December and having everything that I'm driving through, and then realizing, yeah, we might have had the plan, but we're just getting up every week and getting through the week, right, and so yeah, you come to this point where you realize you can't fix this thing and you're drinking too much, but and you know it's on you. And, you know, sometimes things pop in your head that you just have no clue about. Yeah. I used to purposely drive down this road in front of my house too fast. I wanted to get pulled over. I, I knew I needed help, but I couldn't go into my own house and ask for help. I remember getting pulled over and thinking, oh, thank goodness. Now, I didn't want any of the consequences. Yeah. But my brain was like, oh, Okay. And I mean, how crazy is that, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to purposely <laughs> drive drunk and, and speed and put people's lives in danger. Thank God I didn't hurt anybody or myself. And you know, God's got a funny sense of humor, right? I get, I get into the last room and, and there's a AA book sitting on the, on the bench next to me. And I'm like, well, I'm not reading that. I'm not an alcoholic. And then, you know, you go into the rooms and Two or three weeks later, you start hearing all these stories, and then you start working with your sponsor and going through the steps, and you're like, oh, well, yes, I am. I say it's the best thing that happened in my life because it really is. It's changed my life and who I am, but I also know that I'm so lucky to have a chance to be with my kids and my wife as a result. And you not, know, you know, some people don't get that chance, right? yeah uh, They're in jail the rest of their lives. Or they're dead. Or they're dead, or they're divorced, or they're... You yeah, it was strange or whatever. I just...
0: So the gifts of coming into the room started to materialize immediately. At what point did the, the charges against you, how were they mitigated by going into the rooms? Did you <laughs> have additional things you had to do or pay in addition to going into AA?
1: Yeah, you know, um, you put the work in and some surprising things happen, right? Um, the, the original judge got voted out on the of vote. New judge comes in. New judge is like, yeah, he can go into the diversion program, but the Harris County prosecutor didn't want to put me in it, and he said, go get ten letters from AA members that say he's changed his life. Mm. So I went and got those. And I mean, Howard, you were watching me during this. Did right? I write one of those letters? Oh, yeah, I'm sure you okay. did. I, I, I got them in that. a folder, but. Um, <laughs> And I pull them out every once in a while because I remember reading them going, have I really changed this much, right? Because you're just in the middle of it in the first year, right? Yeah. Or at least I was. And I give them to the lawyer, and I'm like, all right, fine, let's go. Let's, you know, like, I want this off of me. And he goes, no, 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 we're going to wait till the video comes back. Well, the video came back, and I stopped at the stop sign that he said I rolled. So the evidence was tainted, and the oh, case got yeah. thrown. And, yeah, you go down there every month, and— sit in the front row and, and you're like, when is this going to be over? And am I going to jail or what's going to happen? And so when my lawyer came back and was like, okay, you got to do so many hours of community service to, and, um, I was like, are you kidding me? Like I, I was so shocked. Right. They thought
0: you were going to go to jail. Well,
1: it was my first one and I didn't think I was, but uh, you know, if the, if the judge, I mean, I, I should have gone, right. I drove drunk. But I remember driving back to the office and calling my wife and then calling my sponsor. And, and my sponsor was like, you know, that's grace. Don't mess it up. And I, I went back to my office and I just looked at the four walls. And I just couldn't believe what had happened in the last 12 months of my life. It literally was June eleventh, two 2019. It was a year from the day that I got sober that, that the case got kicked. And six months later, I remember getting in an argument and it just... It just made me so mad. And it flashed through my head, well, I'll just drink. And then it flashed through my head again, well, that's not going to do anything. And that was the real moment, right? Mm-hmm. Like, all of a sudden, my brain that had done all this stupid stuff for whatever the math is at that point, 50 years, Right. it was like, well, okay, yeah, you've got something that you can't control and it's driving you crazy, and drinking's not going to help. Just get to a meeting, right? Just get to a
0: meeting. So this is after a year in AA. A year and a half, yeah. year and a half, that thought flashes in front of you. Do you have a sense of how close to the edge you actually came? Or is that something that you reflected on later?
1: I don't know how close I was to the edge. I just knew at that point that that I wasn't going to solve my problem. It was just going to let me numb out for a little bit. And that just wasn't a good idea, right? And it's funny, most people are like, how can you go on these golf trips and how can you go on business trips and be in the middle of all this? I'm like, you know, the obsession to drink's gone. And, but a year and a half in, I thought the obsession was gone and it came back on me. And and then I got through that moment and I got to a meeting and, and I was like, okay, God's got me, right? I knew God had me, but, you know, I'm a knucklehead and I think... I'll grab the steering wheel back in the foxhole moments, right? Yeah. And at that point, it was like, okay. And to your point, yeah, I've been putting the work in, right? Yeah. Um, and it's a daily reprieve. but
0: Well, and it also says that, you know, you need, you need to avoid people, places, or situations if you're in a good spiritual condition. So it occurs to me that just the fact that you take sober men on the golf trips with you just the, the forethought of doing that in and of itself said something about your program.
1: Well, I wish I could say I thought about it first. I think, you know, some, some yeah. older men around me were <laughs> like, Hey, you're going on this trip. Uh, let me go with you. Right. I look at it as filling my cup, right? Like now I just fill my cup and in different areas of my life and, and I'm lucky to be able to, you know, go help people and, You know, I still call my sponsor with crazy thoughts and I still have to work on checking my ego and pausing when agitated. And, you know, when someone triggers me, I try to say, tell me more about that just to give myself a chance to go, "Okay, what's going on here? Right. Don't snap off because, you know, someone said something.
0: In addition to that point at 18 months where you thought about drinking, were there any other times between then and now, that your sobriety was tested or tough times where maybe you didn't think about drinking, but you thought about insane behavior? Yeah, when my mom was misdiagnosed with
1: Parkinson's and we and we put her on medication and it made it worse. And that was really hard. But another miracle, right? She's... Thanksgiving and she gets dehydrated and she goes to the emergency room and there happens to be a doctor there that's like I don't think you have Parkinson's let's get you better but i let's get you over and get a second opinion and I just remember and she lives in North Carolina I go up there a fair amount and just watching her walk through that with such grace it's an awful diagnosis. And she was like, okay, I've had a great life. Yeah, let's, let's just get after it and have fun. Huh. And then, no, you were misdiagnosed. You don't have Parkinson's. Oh, okay, that's great. Now let's go have a lot of fun at 85. I mean, to, to watch that. It's a beautiful thing,
0: especially considering what the alternative would have been for you to go through that as an active alcoholic and trying to be there for your mom. And there
1: certainly been other moments. I mean, you
0: know, I, business goes up and down and, you know,
1: family goes up and down. And, you know, there's that phrase, keys of the kingdom. And to me, what that means is there's nothing I'm going to go through that other men haven't gone through already. I think going back to high school and thinking, okay, if I'm in the middle of the locker room and I'm getting picked on, I'm accepted, right? That was kind of my brain's clue to I'm I'm okay, Mm -hmm. right? I'm in the middle of the herd, right? Now it's, I know I'm in the middle of the herd because I go to a lot of meetings and sponsor people and do stuff. But if something pops up in my life, I'm like, okay, who in the room walked through that before, right? Like, what a gift. And I never would have walked into a room of men and been like, okay, I need help.
0: And you could live to be a million and never have all the experiences that a room full of men have to be able to share. And the the thing I've noticed about you and, and makes me grateful to watch how you work your program in the rooms that I see you in is that when there have been times where you needed to share something emotional, the emotions came out. And I, I'm always very—I don't know if envious is the right word because I've always had a problem with— shedding a tear in an AA meeting, except maybe after my mother passed or, you know, one or two times. But when men, other men can get to their feelings, like I've seen you and other men to be able to do, I think that'd be pretty, pretty cool. (laughs) Well, I got to thank my mom, right?
1: My mom was the one who told me it was okay to cry and it was okay to process it. And I turned to her a lot because I, I didn't feel like I was, you know, hitting the mark with my father and and she would always say it's okay right like you're a good person don't worry about it you know it's okay and also you know as i mentioned earlier like i'm in the remind meetings and that's where you're sharing and you're learning about how people are walking through stuff so when you show up you know in the aa rooms it's like oh okay i mean you're drawn. i at least i was i was drawn to it i was like oh okay
0: if you could go back to a Walt at an earlier time in your life, with all you know and your experience in AA and everything else you've been through, uh, what age would he be and what would you tell him to make a difference in his life? Wow.
1: At age 14, I was 5'1 with a size 12 foot, and I got picked on, and that was that was the time in which I was scared. And what I tell that that young man is, you're a good person, yeah, and your behavior is out of al- alignment with the person that you are, mm-hmm. and don't don't pour alcohol on it. Stay centered and and keep walking the walk. It's okay to be the the different one in the room, and and stick to your stick to your morals and stick to what you've been taught and, and walk through the room with your head high. And it, you know, when other people are picking on you, something's going on in their life. And, but at 14, I, I have no fight in that, you know, fight or fight. I, I would come after you. Yeah. And, and then I grew a foot in nine months and I looked like a baby giraffe. Right. So the next year was horrible. And you know, people always talk about my voice, and and I think, well, hey, God gave you this voice so you would walk and talk softly. Yeah, That's not what I thought when I was 14.
0: What a realization to come to as one of the byproducts or the gifts of being sober and in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. What you just said was beautiful, and it makes me think about that 14-year-old kid, and how that 14-year-old kid has turned out, thanks in large part to being pulled over, having to go through what you went through, getting to AA. The cool thing is I've been able to vouch for or validate the kind of program I see you living because I know some of the guys who you sponsor. And those guys, they're amazing. And I, you can always tell the quality of a guy's uh, sobriety by the guys he sponsors, and so I'll say to you: I know they're not all 100% successful. You you get some, you lose some, but from what I know about you and the guys you sponsor and the way you work your program, it's a message that people need to hear. And and so I, what I often tell people is: no matter how great your life gets, go to more meetings. If your life gets even better, go to even more meetings because people need to hear. In sitting in rooms who are feeling despair, they need to hear about the success stories and you didn't get to a success story without having to go through a lot of really tough things in your life but i've just been captivated by talking with you this evening and well, thank uh,
1: you. it's a, it's been an honor to talk to you and you know you don't know the mountaintop unless you've been in the valley right yeah and the, and those guys did the work i i i just walked them through like my sponsor taught me but that's a that's a nice thing for you to say and i'm just grateful to I mean, the only thing that has to change is everything, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you're in the process of changing it. I get that. And then me too. That's right. Well, Walt, thanks again for doing the interview. And I love you and wish you well in your program. I honor your sobriety and your desire to stay in the middle because that's where the action is. Thank you. And right back at you, Howard. Love you and proud of you and respect you. And just thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Walt P., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed the interviews in this podcast series, please share it with others. This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. If you want to contact me directly with any comments, questions, or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. Please also take a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.